Our Old Testament reading this morning is Psalm 127. Psalm 127, reading the whole psalm. This is God's holy, perfect, unfailing word. Let's listen to it. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. And our New Testament reading, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 through 3. If you'd like to turn there to follow along as, as the word is preached, that's page 1048 in the church Bible. Page 1048. 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 2 through 3. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. That sends the reading of God's holy word. Let's ask his blessing on it. Lord, would you please now, by your Spirit, open our hearts to receive your word. Take, take the word read and preached and wield it in our hearts to, to, to do the work that you alone can do of building us up in our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this in his precious name. Amen. Last Lord's Day morning, we started in 1 Thessalonians. And we had some, some questions there, some driving questions uh, that, that we asked. The, the first was this, what should mark a pastor's ministry? What should, what should characterize it? What, what flavor should it have? What, what should the aroma of it be? And the second question, what should mark how a congregation responds to that ministry? And if you remember last Lord's Day, we said, well, uh, our our relationship together, uh, my ministry among you and yours in response to me and your response to the ministry of the word as it's preached and taught here must be marked from first to last by the gospel of God's grace and peace to us in Jesus Christ. That's that's the air that we need to breathe together, to live together under the gospel. My ministry must be saturated with the gospel of God's grace and peace to us in Christ. And our church, our church must be shaped by it. Back in the old days, uh, some churches were actually built in the shape of a cross. They would, they would design it so that the building itself was shaped like a cross. So that you, you walk into it and, and immediately you get you this visual and you're reminded we are in the shape of the cross. Everything we do is, is under the gospel of Jesus Christ. Of course, we don't need our church buildings to be shaped like a cross, but we do need our life together, our church life, to be shaped by it, right? Shaped like it. 
under the Gospel of our Lord Jesus. That's what we said last Lord's Day. But there was an important question that we left unanswered, and that is, well, it all sounds very good, but what does it look like? How does this, you know, when the rubber meets the road, bring it, bring it down to earth. What does this look like practically? How does this get fleshed out in, in our life together? We need to see this illustrated and applied. And that's, that's what the rest of the letter to the Thessalonians does for us. That's what Paul does by the Spirit's inspiration in this letter. He gives us a, the gospel uh, in, in a very practical way. He gives us the gospel in a way we can grip onto and get to work with. So let's dive in now together uh, uh, to, to, our, to our text this morning. So Paul, Paul's opened the letter in verse 1. We looked at this last Lord's Day, verse 1, with his greeting of grace and peace from God. And then right away, here in verses 2 and 3, he turns and starts what's really quite a long section of giving thanks to God for the Thessalonians. And he he tells them just how thankful he is for them, and then he tells them why he's thankful for them. It's, It's because they have these virtues that Christians should have. They have the marks that a healthy church should have, the marks of faith and love and hope. So what we see in these opening two verses here, 2 and 3, are... The marks of Paul's ministry and the marks of the Thessalonian church in response. So those will be our our two points. A ministry marked by prayer and thanksgiving and a church marked by faith, love, and hope. So first, a ministry marked by prayer and thanksgiving. The first thing that jumps out at me as I read this verse here, verse 2, and then into verse 3, is, is the place of prayer in Paul's ministry. Listen to verse 2. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. And then he goes on in verse 3, remembering without ceasing. How does Paul describe the place of prayer in his life? He says it twice here. He says, always and without ceasing. He says he he prays for them constantly. He prays for them always. He prays for them without ceasing. He repeats it just in case they missed it the first time. Now, I read that and I think, well, wait a second, Paul. You can't mean that literally, right? Uh, uh, We have to to put some qualifications in place here. And I don't don't think Paul is saying that he spends every waking minute literally praying. But I think he almost means that. I think he means that, first of all, he and the brothers with him, Silas and Timothy, they also helped him. They were also behind this letter that they had fixed times where they prayed together, where they gathered together, right? Probably several times throughout the day where they would gather together and pray together, pray for all the churches that they ministered to and all the saints they knew. I'm, I'm sure they also had times where they didn't pray together, but they prayed privately following Jesus' example in Matthew 14.23. And when he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Probably any given morning, you go to Paul's house and you find Paul, Silas, and Timothy. They're each in their own corner, on their knees, wrestling with God in prayer. And, and beyond this, beyond these set times of prayer, I'm sure Paul also and Silas and Timothy, when they say we pray without ceasing, we pray always, I think, I think they mean that we, we live in a state of prayerfulness and in, in communion with God. Like Praying is like breathing to Paul and those with him. It's, it's, a, it's a habit. It's, it's just the in and out of his spiritual lungs, seeking God's blessing constantly on him. 
This is what I think he means when he says that he prays always. He commands the Thessalonians to do the same thing. He'll tell them this at the end of the letter, 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Pray without ceasing. He wants them to do it too. He's practicing what he preaches. And this isn't something that's just you know, unique to Paul and his little circle, Silas and Timothy. Paul's not an exception in having prayer at the heart of his ministry here. The other apostles didn't look at him and say, well, that's very strange, Paul, that you pray so much. If we look over at Acts 6, the apostles uh, uh, there in Acts 6, they find there's more work than they can do. And so they, 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 have some, they, they ordain deacons to do the work of mercy ministry, taking the food to the, to the widows. And they say that they themselves are going to devote themselves to what God's given them particularly to do. And this is how they describe their task, the apostolic task. Acts 6, verse 4. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. That's what they devote themselves to. And notice the order, right? Prayer and the ministry of the Word. Prayer is mentioned first. Not that it's more important, but it is important. There are two halves to a whole. So Paul's ministry, marked by prayer. But it's not just prayer that stands out prominently as he starts here. It's, it's prayer that is filled with thanksgiving. And the thankful part is really the, the dominant part here, isn't it? His, his ministry is dominated by prayer, and his prayer is dominated by thanksgiving, at least right here in, in this text. He's, he's thankful for God's grace at work in the Thessalonian church. Remember, he, he's, he had to leave the Thessalonian church early because of opposition and persecution. He was driven out. So he sends Timothy back after a little while to see how they're doing. And Timothy comes with a, with a really encouraging report. And so Paul is thankful. He's overjoyed at what he hears. Loved ones, does, does Thanksgiving dominate our praying? Not just general Thanksgiving. Paul's Thanksgiving here is specific and not just thanksgiving for material things. It's good to thank God for material things. But, but Paul's thankfulness here is for things that are spiritual. Thanksgiving doesn't come naturally to us. Um, if you have kids, you know this so well. Right? You don't have to teach your children supplication. Right? They get that part. They supplicate all the time. I want ice cream. right? Or, or I, I want a snack. I want, I want... They know how to ask for things. They'll beg and beg. But what, what kid did we ever hear come up with the idea of being thankful all on their own? You imagine a two-year-old saying, I'm just so thankful for everything you do for me, Mom. You take care of me all day. I don't deserve it. Thank you so much. If we're honest with ourselves, our hearts aren't so much different. We've learned, hopefully, outwardly, to be more polite. But inwardly in our hearts, especially before God, are we thankful? Are we amazed at how well He cares for us and all that He does for us and His love for us, even though we must be so frustrating in our sinfulness and our stubbornness? I think our natural instinct is to think, God owes me, than it is to think, God has given me a superabundance and I owe Him everything. Paul's heart, loved ones has so come under the sway of the gospel, it's been so shaped by God's abundant grace to him in Christ, a sinner. Remember, here he was. He was persecuting the church, running after them and putting them into prison. God came and saved him, and Paul, Paul can't get over it. 
that, that he is full of thanksgiving. His heart overflows with it. And he didn't, have a, he didn't have a life that you'd think would prompt Thanksgiving in a lot of ways, right? When he comes to Thessalonica at first, he's fresh out of jail in Philippi for preaching the gospel. He comes to, he comes to, to Thessalonica and uh, he starts preaching there and immediately persecution and opposition. He has to run for his life. He goes to the next town, starts preaching there. And it happens again. The Jews from Thessalonica come and oppose him. And uh, he has to run from there. But we don't hear Paul saying, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't. I, 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 I slave away for God, and this is how he takes care of me. No, Paul, Paul says, I can't believe the grace God has shown me. I can't believe I get to be a Christian and that God is using me even in his kingdom. Loved ones, how thankful we are is a measure of how we understand the grace of God. A heart that lives under the gospel of grace and peace will be a thankful heart. Our our gratitude is the level of our understanding of the grace God has shown us. So this is how Paul starts. He prays without ceasing, and his prayer is full of thanksgiving to God for the grace he's shown the Thessalonian church. But what's, what's the point here? He begins this way, but why does he start this way? I think he, he's, he's telling us here something important about gospel ministry, something about the way the kingdom of God advances. I think he's, he's saying this, faithful and fruitful ministry is ministry that is, that is produced by the power of God and the power of God alone. Faithfulness and fruitfulness. And isn't that what we want? We want to be faithful to God's gospel. We want to get it right. We want to, we want to live right according to God. And we also want to see fruit from that. People worshiping and serving the Lord, seeing growth. This comes from God alone. That's why Paul starts here this way. Only God can do this for us. A ministry that's marked by prayer and marked by thanksgiving recognizes that the source of all the growth is from God and God alone. Remember Psalm 127, which we just read a few minutes ago. The Lord must build the house. If he doesn't build it, our work is a waste of time. That's what Psalm 127 says, and that's what Paul, kicking off this letter with prayer and thanksgiving, is saying. If the Lord isn't the one doing it, it's a waste of our time. Only God can build the house, build the church. Brothers and sisters, growth doesn't come from the pastor or the elders or children. It doesn't really come from your parents. It doesn't come from ourselves. Of course, we have a part to play. We have lots and lots of work we have to do. But all the growth, 100% of it, comes from God. Listen to what Paul says. 1 Corinthians 3.6 I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Or the way Jesus puts it in Matthew 16, 18. I will build my church, Jesus says. We're quick to forget that, I think. I'm quick to forget that. It's easy to start thinking, it's up to us, it's up to me, it's up to how I preach and lead and counsel and evangelize. It's, it's on what ministries and programs we, we get to work on. It's, it's on how well we can parent our children or, or teach. 
I think, I think uh, it, part of us wants it to be up to us. Right? Because it, even if just a little bit of my growth or, or, or the church's growth or our, our, our family's growth, if even just a little bit comes from us, we can get some of the glory and some of the credit for it. Right? If I do 15% of the work, maybe I get 15% of the credit. But God says, no, no, no. The glory is all mine. The work is all mine. This is a supernatural kingdom, beloved. It can only be advanced by supernatural power. That's why Paul prays. He's come to see that every last bit of faithfulness and fruitfulness that he sees in the church is from the sovereign power of God. So, dear brothers and sisters, we need to pray, don't we? If, if God is the one who does the work, we need to ask Him to do it. That's, that's our part. It's to, it's to get on our knees and plead with Him to do what He's promised to do and do what only He can do. We need to pray that we would pray. I would ask that you pray, that I would pray, that the elders would pray. Would you commit to that, to praying, that, 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 that we would be a praying church and to praying for me that, that, that prayer would mark my ministry that I would see that my need of it and that all this, all this depends on God and His work. Would you pray this for the elders? Would you pray it for our church? That's the first part of what we see here in verse 2. We see a ministry marked by prayer and thanksgiving. Let's, uh, let's look now at, at the reason for this thanksgiving. Why is Paul so thankful? This is what we see next in verse 3. A church marked by faith, love, and hope. This is our second point. So we see these three virtues here, right? Faith, love, and hope. These pop up all over the New Testament. Um, They show up in 1 Corinthians 13, probably most famously, right? Faith, hope, and love is the order we're given there. They show up in some form or another in Romans, Galatians, Colossians, 1 Peter, and Hebrews. So this is a, these three together, this triad pops up all over the, the New Testament. They're, they're the, kind of the three classic virtues of Christianity. And the Thessalonians seem to, seem to have them. And you can imagine Timothy coming back to Paul in Athens and saying, Paul, the church in Thessalonica is doing great. They're thriving. And, and I know they've faced intense persecution and opposition from the get-go, but they're flourishing. And, and you could probably tell Paul story after story of, of, of how they're bearing fruit of the gospel. And, and, and as Paul hears all this, he thinks of these three marks, these three virtues of the Christian faith, faith, love, and hope. And so he writes this first as what he's thankful for for them. He wants the Thessalonians to know they have these marks. Let's look at each of them. He, he says first that he gives thanks for their work of faith. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Works of faith. We think of, we think of faith and works really as opposites, as things that, that, do, that don't mesh together, right? Paul says over in Romans 3.28, we're justified by faith apart from works of the law. But if he's, talking, he's talking there about justification. He's not talking about justification here. Here he's talking about the works that are produced by faith, that are the fruit of faith. Uh, that The faith that saves us is a faith that, that then gets to work. It's a faith that unites us to Christ, and that, that, that union with Christ produces real spiritual fruit. Paul doesn't get, in, uh, 
get too specific here beyond calling what he sees in the church in Thessalonica works of faith. I think he's trying to paint with a broad brush and, and, and saying, Thessalonians, based on, based on Timothy's report, based on my time with you, I see that you're full of the fruit of faith in God. Faith that's hard at work serving each other and serving those outside you. The, the poor in Thessalonica are probably being helped. The discouraged are being encouraged. They're writing thank you notes and cards and encouraging each other and making meals, visiting the sick, visiting the elderly, maybe even fixing septic tanks. Right, this is the work of faith, right? encouraging and blessing each other. This is all flowing from the faith they have in Christ. And brothers and sisters, uh, let's rejoice because we see this here, don't we? We see it here at Lymington OPC. Um, it seems everywhere I look, I see works of faith. People serving and loving and encouraging one another in tangible ways. Responding in God to, uh, in obedience to, to God. Let's, let's give thanks to God for this and, and praise Him for it, loved ones. It's His work. Let's be encouraged that, that this is happening here. And let's also make it our ambition that it would go on, that we would, that we would see more, that, that we would, that we would uh, uh, do more out of our faith, that we would do more for one another and to, to serve one another. Not, not because we're striving to earn favor and approval, but because of the faith we have in Christ. Doing these things with our eyes on God. So that's works, works of faith. Then Paul goes on and he gives thanks for the uh, labor of love that he sees happening in Thessalonica. They love God. They love Paul. They love each other. They love Christians in other cities. They love those who are around them, even those who are opposing them. Paul looks at the church there and he sees a real affection and a real sympathy and tenderness towards all these people around them. A real desire for what's best for those around them. And, and this is a love, he says, that's hard at work. It's a wonderful little phrase that he uses here. He says, labor of love. That word labor, uh, it, it means something that's burdensome, something that takes effort. One commentator defines it as work that's hard, strenuous, and exhausting. I'm sure you can remember you know, a time in your life doing that kind of labor, putting in that kind of effort. I remember back in high school soccer practice when the coach would make us do what we used to call suicide drills. And um, you'd start at the goal line. You'd have to sprint to the 18-yard line, touch it, and sprint back. Turn around, sprint to the half line, touch it, turn around, dash back. Run to the opposite 18-yard line, touch it, turn around, all the way back. Run to the far goal line, touch it, turn around, all the way back. And by the end, you're just exhausted. And the coach blows the whistle and tells you to do it again. That's kind of the picture here. Exhausting work. Or you can think of, think of uh, uh, perhaps motherhood. That's the picture that dominates for me right now. Of, 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 of intense, constant, sacrificing labor. That's the picture here. This is, this is how hard the Thessalonians are working at loving Paul, loving each other, loving other Christians, and loving even outsiders around them. This is, then this is what love does. It, it spends itself. It, it doesn't hold itself back. 
even when it's not getting anything in return. And again, loved ones, praise the Lord that this is happening here. That we can look around and see signs of this. We can, uh, and I'm sure we don't see the half of it that happens. People spending themselves in love for each other. For the sake of Christ. Let's, um, let's continue on in it, right? Let's, let's continue to strive to grow in this labor of love. This self-exhausting work of loving one another. Right, and, and not, not, that we're going, not that we should burn ourselves out in this. We're not called to be God. We're not called to be the Messiah. We shouldn't try to be. We need rest and refreshment. We need to know when to say no. But at the same time, we are called to self-denial. We are called to a life that's a labor of exhausting love. How can we do this? It's only if we're filled with love for each other. This, this labor, this, this exhausting work must be produced by love. This is the only thing that can sustain this. A, a love that, that is fill, filled up from God that we can then pour out on one another. Not, not that uh, we, we produce this in ourselves. It only comes from the love of God. That's the second thing. Then Paul goes on to the third. The third virtue that he thanks God for is the patience of hope. I don't think it's by accident Paul ends with hope. In 1 Corinthians 13, he ends with love because love's the focus there. Here he ends with hope, I think, because hope is what's uppermost in his mind when he thinks of the situation of this church in Thessalonica. The church here desperately needs hope in Thessalonica. Uh, this, this church wasn't more than three weeks old when persecution hit. And, and, and the people in this church are being slandered. Uh, people they knew before, people they knew around town in Thessalonica, their neighbors, their friends, their co-workers are, are, are now dragging their names through the mud, slandering them, saying bad things about them. Friends of theirs, family members probably, don't want them around anymore. People avoid them when they, when they go into the market in Thessalonica. People spread lies about them. Some of them have already been dragged by an angry mob before the authorities. Who knows when it will happen again. Some of them might have lost their work for this. So Paul says, I praise God for your hope. They need hope. The hope that they have, the hope they need, isn't a flimsy, wishful thinking. Uh, it's not a vague optimism. I'm sure things will get better. No, it's a, it's a solid certainty as one commentator puts it. This is a granite-hard confidence that God will do us good. This isn't like hoping you'll uh, win the lottery. It's like hoping the sun will rise. Right? Having a solid certainty, it will rise. God will do us good. Their hope is this, this solid certainty, particularly fixed on Jesus Christ. That's what the verse tells us. It's hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. As the rest of the letter will unfold and emphasize, it's in Christ's return, his coming back. This is, this is what the believers there in Thessalonica are, are absolutely convinced of, that Christ is coming back soon for them. And, and that when he does come back, all the opposition they faced, all the persecution and hardship, will just fade away like a bad dream. 
And it will have been worth it. Over you know, ten times over, it would have been worth it for them. When Christ comes and takes them to Himself and to glory in heaven with their heavenly reward with Him forever. This is their hope. What does it produce? It produces patience, we're told. The, uh, the word translated here, patience, could be translated as steadfastness or endurance. I think I've shared this before. Whenever I, whenever I see that word endurance, I think of the, the ship, the endurance that, uh, that Ernest Shackleton was, was sailing in his, in his uh, attempt to reach the South Pole down, through, down to Antarctica. They, they named the ship there that they were going to take on that dangerous, treacherous trip, the endurance, because they had to endure the roughest possible seas, the coldest storms, the crushing pressure of the ice sheets down there, and, 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 and they had to endure, they had to hang on and press on through it. The, the word here, the, 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 this word that's translated patience, was a word that uh, the, the Jewish thought of the time identified with, with martyrs. This is the virtue of the martyrs, those who give up their very lives for God. This is, this is endurance, patience. It's not, um, it's, not a, it's not a stoicism, right, just, just hanging in there for the sake of it, but it's, it's a solid, never-give-up certainty that Christ will come and take me home. And brothers and sisters, we also need that hope, don't we? We need that endurance, that, that patience produced by hope. Right, just like the Thessalonians did. Now, we haven't seen the opposition that they saw, have we? But, but we will. And I don't, I don't mean that uh, I'm not prophesying, I'm not forecasting. I'm, this is what we see when we read the Scriptures, right? We're living in the latter days of the New Testament age where there is opposition to the Gospel. Uh, to quote Piper on this, I don't say this with my finger in the wind, but with my finger in the Bible. The Bible tells us opposition is coming and persecution is coming. Second Thessalonians 3.12 All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So opposition is coming. Opposition is here. We need hope. The endurance of hope. Our hope is this. Christ is coming soon. So, brothers and sisters, this is, this is what the gospel applied looks like in this first instance as we unpack these first couple of verses of 1 Thessalonians. This is, this is how we live it out, on our knees in prayer, giving thanks to God, trusting Him to do His work, calling on Him to do more of it, and striving by His grace to, to persevere in these things in faith, love, and in hope. Let's praise Him as we see it here. And let's pray for more of it here. Amen.